you know, I had lunch with Father Ben, and uh, so he was working in Smoky Mountain for a very long time, and I said, what was the one thing that surprised you the most working with the Smoky Mountain people? And the thing he said, just right off the bat, he said, the thing that, that surprised me and shocked me the most is how happy the people are. He just assumed that because they were the poorest of the poor, that they would be miserable. But he's like, I would hang out with them all day, and they would just tell jokes all day long. <laughs> and I was sitting there right in the front pew, and they really looked happy, you know? It was a very infectious joy. Um, so anyway, uh, high schoolers, middle schoolers, you guys can raise your hand. Um, right after service, we're going to go to the fellowship hall. They're going to do like their even better dance for us, seriously. And, um, and then we're going to have an icebreaker, get a chance to meet them. And then folks, the adults will be on the other half of the fellowship hall. And you guys can come and peek in or come and join us. And it's going to be great, okay? So I, I'd like to start off with a story. I'd like to start off with a story. Um, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. This story haunts me, but it's kind of a funny story. Let me, let me share with you the story. Raina bought these little icebreaker things for dinner time. It's for families. So you go through these questions, and they ask you little questions, and you go around the table, and you answer the questions. And so it was a really cool game. Our family was really into it. We're having dinner one time. And lo and behold, there's this question, and the question was, what's the most important lesson you've learned from mom and dad? And so my, my middle son speaks up first. And he says, eat your food. <laughs> and, you know, that's actually something we remind him quite often. Nutrition, healthy eating, absolutely. We want him to grow. I have no problem with that. But then my oldest son spoke up. And he said, well, I think the most important lesson that mom and dad have taught me is about God. But I don't find God that interesting. Now, you've got to understand, God is at the very center of my life. That's my joy, okay? And so when he's saying this inside, I am so heartbroken and crestfallen. But I don't want him to, to, to see that because I don't want him to, like, correct it because he's trying to please me. So I turn to him and I'm just like, okay, you don't find God very interesting. What do you find interesting? And he said to me, well, I don't know. Maybe something like uh, a hamster. <laughs> okay, I don't know what I said next. I looked at Raina. She looked at me and... I remember the next day I'm journaling about this. I'm like, God, we got some serious problems. My son thinks that a hamster is more interesting than you are. And I'm thinking about this and I'm reflecting and I'm reflecting a lot. I'm thinking, okay. And I know some of you are like, oh, Andrew, Pastor Andrew, don't worry. It's developmentally appropriate because, you know, abstraction hasn't really developed in him yet. And God is still kind of abstract for him. And, you know, toys and hamsters and video games are a lot more down to earth. They're a lot more tangible. Don't worry about it. Abstraction will develop later, but the theologian in me is now at work. And I'm thinking, what my son has said 
as I read the Bible, is actually the human condition. How many of us actually find the hamsters of life more interesting, more valuable, more time-worthy than God? I think we all do it. And I think we have the same problem as my son. Now think about this, though. We think a hamster is more interesting, valuable, worthy of our love than God of the universe. (laughs) And a lot of times we're choosing the hamster. And you know there's something very fundamentally, fundamentally wrong with this. And the most loving thing that God does is he says, let the hamster be the hamster and let God be God. Uh, Turn your Bibles with me to uh, Mark chapter 10. Now, we've been in this series called Multiply for like five weeks now. But today is the first day where we actually get into the material covered in Multiply. (laughs) So I guess the, the, the first five weeks were almost like the preface, the introduction, if you will. And now we finally go into the material. Now, I'm wondering, does everyone have a multiply book at home? Because if you don't, I'm going to give you an offer you cannot refuse, okay? If you go to www.multiplymovement.com, you can get a free book. And some of you have iPhones right now. You can go there and get it now. Others of you, you want a hard copy. You're more old school like me, and there's going to be hard copies available in the back. But we want a book in everyone's hand, in everyone's iPhone, uh, because we're going to go through this together as a church. Now, I want you guys to know that our kids today are going through Luke 5. We're going through Mark 10. They're going through Luke 5. I just want to prep the parents for the car ride home, okay? So Luke 5 is where Jesus calls his first disciples. Many of you know this story, right? The fishermen were the first disciples. They spent all night fishing. They didn't catch a thing. And then in the morning, they're washing their nets. Jesus gets in the boat because, you know, there's this huge, massive crowd. And then the, the boat pulls off the shore. Jesus preaches about the kingdom of God. And then Jesus turns to the fishermen and says, throw out your net into the sea. Daytime is not the best time to fish, nor is it actually strategic to fish in the deep end. There's no fish there, and there's no fish there during the daytime. But Jesus said it, so they do it. And then they pull up the biggest catch of fish they have ever seen. And then Peter gets a clue. This man is no ordinary man. And he falls at Jesus' feet and says, get away from me because I'm evil. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Okay? Now, we're going to study today another time where Jesus told another person to follow me, but it's totally different. Very similar, but totally different. Now, if you go to multiply one, one, and you're reading that section, there's all these themes that emerge, becoming like Jesus, the gospel of grace. It all comes down to love. Count the cost. I found a scripture passage that has all those themes in it. I'm just going to take you through the scripture passage, and that will be multiply 1-1. One, one. So, Mark 10, starting in verse 17. 
I will say this as a little bit of an introduction to this scripture. If I could make a list of the top 10 scriptures that would be most appropriate for our church, most challenging, most gritty, most relevant, I'm thinking this would be in the top 10. Okay? And you'll see why in a moment. Verse 17, as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What can you tell me about this man? I mean, just from that description, what can you tell me? Well, he's sincere, right? He's eager. He runs up and he kneels down. He's humble. Why? Because he ran up and he knelt down. <laughs> and he's also teachable. What do I say he's teachable? Well, he's asking questions. He's asking a really good question. What's the good question? The good question is, what must I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? In other words, what do I have to do to go to heaven? Now, there's assumption here, which is kind of the ancient Jewish Orthodox assumption that there's actually something you can do to go to heaven. You can earn heaven somehow. Verse 18, and Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. All right, why does Jesus say this? Well, Jesus says, hey, look, don't use the word good casually. I mean, there's a distinction between good and good, good, right? Uh, how's your meal? It's good. How'd you do on the test? Good. Then there's infinitely, perfectly divine God good, right? So don't be using that word casually. Which one are you calling me? Good or good, good? Are you calling me infinitely perfect good? Verse 19, you know the commandments. Now, in a second, Jesus is about to, like, really challenge this guy's thinking that someone can do something to earn heaven. But he doesn't do it right away. Instead, he goes, okay, well, you're thinking that, you're assuming that, so let's, let's go with that. Let's entertain your perspective. He says, you know the commandments. Now, Jesus is referring to the Ten Commandments. Okay, so he goes the first one, do not murder. Okay, which number is do not murder? It's number six. Okay, interesting. Ten commandments. Jesus says, you know the commandments. He starts at number six, don't murder, right? And then he goes with a do not commit adultery. That's number seven. Do not steal, number eight. Do not bear false witness, number nine. Do not defraud. Interesting. Do not defraud is a combination of eight and nine. And then he goes, honor your mother, which is number five. So he left out the first four and the last one. Why does Jesus do that? Verse 20, and he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Ah, so Jesus was deliberately saying, here's five commandments of the Ten Commandments that you're actually doing. So let me just list them out for you. These are the ones you're actually doing, and so rightly so. The guy says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. 21. Now, get a load of 21. Okay, brace yourself for 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, 
Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus looked at this man, loved this man. You lack one thing. What do you think this man lacked? What was that one thing you think this man lacked? Now, what I'd like you to do is actually turn to someone next to you, and I want you to share your best answer, okay? Jesus says, one thing you lack. Well, I think it would behoove us to go, well, what do you think that one thing is? What do you think that one thing is? Why don't you turn to your neighbor, and for the next, like, you know, 30 seconds, you're going to give them your best response as to what you think that one thing is this man lacked. Go. Go for it. Okay, I'm going to give you my best take on this. What, what, do you, what do you think this thing is that this man lacked? And I would say this straight off the bat, okay? Jesus doesn't tell us. How do you like that? He didn't, he didn't say. He didn't say. But I actually think my answer is the best. But, but, but listen, listen to me. This is how I'm going to reason it out, okay? First of all, <clears throat> he goes, you know the commandments. There's ten. I'm going to give you five that you're already doing, i.e., the other five you're not doing, i.e. the other five you're lacking. Okay, the first four, what are the first four of the Ten Commandments about? Loving God. Loving God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And so I'm not going to like make an idol and bow down to it. I'm going to be loving God with heart, soul, and mind. So it kind of makes you go, hmm, maybe, this, maybe that's the thing that this guy lacked. But what was number 10? Jesus left out number 10. What's number 10? Do not covet. Do not be greedy. Materialism. Hmm, you're putting this all together, right? Now, now here's the other hint, okay? <clears throat> you can tell indirectly what this man lacked by the treatment plan that Jesus gave this man. Okay, so if you just look at the treatment plan and the prescription, you can kind of gather what the problem is. Okay, so for example, if a doctor prescribes for me uh, muscle relaxants, why is that? Because I have tension in my muscles, right? Because clearly you think this man works out. You're looking at it visually. I'm kidding. Okay. Okay, you know, if you have heart medication, there's something dysfunctional in your heart, right? So you look at the uh, treatment plan and you go, okay, 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 I can see what the problem is. Now, what do you think the problem with this man is, is that his love for money was killing him. But killing him specifically in his relationship with God. It was like a poison. It was like a cancer. And it needed to be surgically removed. It needed to be radically cut off. And so then Jesus in his ultimate plan is like, okay, let this go. Cut this off. But this is what you need to do. Come and follow me. Come be with me. Come do life with me. Come be like me. So what did this man lack? This man lacked. He lost his passion and his joy for God. 
He wasn't captivated and dazzled by God anymore. I mean, who knows? Maybe he never had it. Or maybe he did have it and he lost the fire for God. And Jesus is like, this is what you got to do to get it back. But, but listen, he, he tells this man to do something radical. But before he tells this man to go and sell everything you have, what did Jesus do? The scripture says Jesus looked at him. And he loved him. And then he said what he said. Everything that he said was the most loving thing that he could actually tell this man. But even before he loved him, he looked at him. So here's my thing. When Jesus Christ looks at you today and he sees the condition of your heart, what does he see? Let me say this again. If Jesus Christ has the ability to look at a person and see the condition of the heart, and he were to look at you today, what would he see? Is there anything in your life that's stealing your passion and joy for God away? Let's talk about this word idolatry. Um, It's got a lot of baggage, but it's actually a really fascinating word. Now, the history of idolatry is that God gave to people gifts. And we have received those gifts and loved those gifts so much that we've actually loved those gifts more than God. So, idolatry, in essence, is to take a good thing and to make it an ultimate thing. An ultimate thing. Uh, Idolatry is to take the gift and to love the gift more than the gift giver. It's to take the creation... And to love the creation more than the creator. Now this is really, really wrong on a couple different levels. Number one, when we de-God God and love the gifts more than God, it is completely and totally and utterly offensive to God. Because he made the human heart so that there could be only one thing that you could treasure, and that was God. And gifts are supposed to be more peripheral, but in the heart, in the center was God. And so, number one, it's completely offensive to God, but this just doesn't work because number two, when you make a good thing and you make it ultimate, the good thing doesn't ultimately satisfy because God created the human heart so that the only ultimate thing that would satisfy was God. And so you're also left with these gifts ultimately, but they they don't satisfy. I'll give you one example of this. When I was a younger man in my teens and in my 20s, my idol, without, without a doubt, was um, women. You know, but I, I didn't have a woman. And it was the wanting of a woman that was my idol. I wanted a girlfriend so badly. I just felt like there was this huge gaping hole in my heart. And the only thing that could fill it was this beautiful woman who thought I was desirable. That was my idol. Now, let me ask, can you guess what was the thing that helped me root that idol out of my heart? Anyone want to guess? Marriage. No, I'm being, I'm being honest. I went off and I got that woman and she was beautiful. She was everything I ever wanted in a woman. And I realized that she cannot be an ultimate thing because there can only be one ultimate spouse who is Christ. And he alone can ultimately satisfy me. And so this wonderful gift 
was relegated to its rightful place because a gift cannot ultimately satisfy. Only God can ultimately satisfy. So I, I want you to think about this, okay? I think a lot of people are like, oh gosh, this was so hard for this man. Let go. You got to sell all your possessions. I'm hard, miserable, but no, no, no. Can you imagine God saying this to this man so he can let go of a lesser pleasure so that he could get a greater pleasure? No, listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis, okay? Amazing, so insightful, this quote. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child that wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. <laughs> Just imagine God coming up to you and go, you choose. Draws a line in the sand. You can choose the hamster, the riches, the burrito, the children, girlfriend, or you can choose infinite joy in God. Infinite joy in God. You choose. Only one will ultimately satisfy. But do you actually believe that if you let go of something and just grab onto God, that he will ultimately satisfy? Do you believe that? So recently, I was going on a walk. Like, I, I live in this really cool place, and there's this lagoon, and it was after hours, and I was going for a walk. And I was having just like a, this great conversation with God. And then, you know, sometimes when you're having a great conversation with God, there's this song that you want to sing. And there was this song that I wanted to sing, and it, it was called, um, I can't find it on YouTube, but it's called, you know, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And, it, you know, this, it was stuck in my head. I wanted to sing that song, but it was, I was just like, you know, I can't sing that song. You know why I can't sing that song? Because it, it's not true. <laughs> I can't sing that song to God. Can you sing that song to God that you've loved him? with? I can't sing that song. But then I felt God was saying, yeah, you can't sing that song, but I can sing that song to you. And so for the next five minutes, it was like God was singing that song to me. And I was, I was really enjoying it. This is a great song, God. Can you do it over again? So I was having this great time with God. And then in a very vulnerable moment, it was just kind of this heart-to-heart with God. I just said, God... Is there anything in my life that's keeping me from loving you more? Because I, I, I want to know your love more. I just want to be closer to you. Is there anything that's keeping me from being closer to you? And then in my mind, in the back of my mind, something rose to the surface. One word. Netflix. That's what came, Okay. Netflix. Now, I've told you this story. I've told you this story before. I'm a pastor. I work really hard. I get stressed. My free time and my downtime are really, really important to me. And so one of the things I really like to do in my free time is I like to watch like a movie, right? But you can't just watch half a movie. You got to watch all the movie. And I got like three hours at night. So I would watch like maybe a whole movie, one out of every two nights, or maybe one every night. Okay, maybe honestly, maybe one every night. I was talking to this one person who was saying to me, like, how in the world do you have time to do that? <laughs> because this person wasn't married with kids, and I am. And I was like, I don't know, I enjoy it. And when you enjoy something, you find time for it. And I enjoy Netflix. And so I, I found time for it, like, almost every night. But then here's the thing. I would wake up the next morning... 
And, you know, sometimes when you wake up in the morning, your mind's clear and you have the sensitivity to God. But I wouldn't be really sensitive to God. I'd be thinking about the images from the Netflix movie that I saw the, the night before. And so sometimes, and there's always been this aching, like, gosh, I kind of wish that God spoke to me more than, like, my once-a-month quota. Because, you know, like, it's like once a month. I kind of wish that he was speaking to me more often. So anyway, he says Netflix, and I go, okay. If you're giving me this option between Netflix or more of God, I'm going to choose God. So, you want me to give up Netflix? I'll give up Netflix. How long do you want me to give up Netflix? Six months? A year? Two days? You know, it's funny. I feel like God said, you know, it's up to you. You choose. I said, okay, I'll choose a year. But I also made it realistic, okay? So I've said goodbye to Netflix. I've canceled the subscription, but I can watch a movie during my Sabbath. If someone else initiates watching a movie, I can watch the movie. <laughs> and if, if, if someone... I can also watch movies in the theater if I want to. So you guys can actually invite me. <laughs> okay, so, so I, I did make these little conditions, right? I'm not a strict legalist. I, I like it, right? But I want the gift to be in, in a gift, not the ultimate. I want God to be the ultimate. So this is the thing. I, I, I recently have gone to see this counselor who's doing like spiritual direction with me. And this counselor asked me, what's been God saying to you recently? And it surprised me. It shocked me. I'm like, actually, the truth is I just heard from God two, two, two days ago. And he was affirming me as the head of my family, as the head of this church. And I just burst into tears. And I started to write a whole paragraph of what he was telling me. And then last week, I felt like he was saying this to me. He was saying, Andrew, oh, Andrew, you are worried and distracted by many things, but only one thing is necessary. I'm like, I actually feel like I'm listening to God a lot more often now. Can that be connected to the Netflix? I'm wondering. I think it might be, actually. So it's not just let go of it, but it's let go of it so you can have something far better. It's, it's let go of something so you can pick something up to be closer to God. And so what I've done is I've let go of Netflix, but it doesn't just work to not let go of Netflix. You've got to let go of Netflix and also do something more. So I'm spending like an hour, you know, with God when I can, like, you know, maybe like three or four times a week. It does a lot. I'm listening to God more. I'm feeling closer to God. Now listen, what if it was like God saying, listen, you can have the hamster, the burrito, the woman, the girlfriend, your love for your own children, or you can have more of me. Which one is it? You decide. You decide. Which one's worth more? Can you say no to the lesser pleasure so you can say yes to the greater pleasure? Verse 23, let's move on. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, okay, listen to this. This is such a weird statement. Okay, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, two questions. Number one, who are you calling rich? Number two, what does Jesus mean by this? First of all, who are you calling rich? Now, I bet you, once we read this, this verse, you know, how difficult it, be will, it will be for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I bet you most of us just kind of dismissed ourselves from being rich. And in our minds, we were going, I'm not rich. Do you want to know who's rich? The person who's rich. 
And then the person that we pointed to was like, oh, I'm not rich, I'm not rich. The person over there, you know who's rich? Bill Gates is rich, right? So everyone's pointing to each other. No one's actually owning that they're rich. We got a problem here. But here's a little bit of reality check, okay? They say that if you live in the Bay Area, in America, you are the top 1% of the world. If you, if you drink water today and you won't worry about parasites in, those, in, in the water, if you went to college, pretty much if you've grown up in the Bay Area, 99% of the rest of the world is pointing to us and going, we're not rich, you're rich. Okay, at some point, someone has to fess up and say, we're rich. I will be the first one to say, I'm rich. And I'm thinking that most of us are too. Okay, so maybe number one is like, oh gosh, rich, rich. Oh, okay, that's me. But number two, what does Jesus mean when he says how difficult it will be for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God? And I was, I was listening to this Francis Chan message. And he was like, I consulted all these commentaries and I was listening to all these messages. And then, and then I was thinking and praying about this. And I, it suddenly occurred to me what Jesus really meant. When Jesus said how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, what he really meant was how difficult it would be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why? How can Jesus say that? How can Jesus say that? A camel is um, the largest animal that lives in Palestine. A needle is like the smallest opening. Jesus is saying it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to make it into heaven. Okay. Let me try to lighten the load. But some of you will disagree with me. But this is honestly how I read it. I think that Jesus was exaggerating. Now, I, I have no problem with my teacher exaggerating when he feels like it's necessary. Just as long as I know where is he exaggerating, where is he not. But without a doubt, he's painting a very clear picture. It's very, very difficult. Jesus says it's really, really hard to be a Christian especially in America, especially if you live in the Bay Area. There are tons of distractions, iPad, Netflix, hamsters and burritos. You know, there's all this children, families, success, tons of all these distractions that we love more than Jesus. Who lives life where God is their treasure? Who does that? Come on. Why is that? Because it's so hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. And plus security has this illusion of security. You know, like, trust in me, trust in me, I'll take care of you. One time I asked this missionary, Steve Torgerson, he was up here, he was preaching with me. I said, can you describe the faith of the, the rural Chinese Christians? And you know, he said to me, he said, their faith is so gritty and it's so real. I'm like, what do you mean by that? He goes... If you were to pull a Chinese Christian who lives in the rural uh, villages and just ask them, 
How has God been real to you? They will tell you a story that week. God did this. God spoke this. I'm like, why? He said, because they live an inch from desperation. They don't have these security nets. They don't have insurance or emergency funds. They lose their job. They're done. They lose their health. They're done. So when you live an inch from desperation, you are depending upon God. And when you're looking at God, God comes through. Now you got stories. But you know what we're lacking? We're lacking stories. Because we got all these security nets. I lose my job. I got insurance. I lose my health. I got my emergency fund. Ah, I don't need God. I got wealth. I got money. I got all these distractions. Okay, I am a Christian, but I'm a weak one because all these distractions are distracting me. It is hard. Hard, hard, hard to be a strong Christian in the Bay Area. It is just hard. Verse 26, And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Okay, the disciples asked, Who can be saved? The ancient Jewish person believed that wealth was a gift from God, and rightly so. I mean, look at Abraham. Look at all his camels, right? Wealth was a gift from God. So if these people who are blessed of God have such a hard, difficult time entering the kingdom of heaven, then how do any of us have a chance? Now, notice how Jesus engaged them. He doesn't go, oh, yeah, yeah, you know what you got to do? You just got to live in poverty, and that will greatly increase your chances. He doesn't say that. He just agrees with the disciples. Yeah, let's face it. It's impossible. You cannot do a single thing to earn God's approval. Oh, now he's answering the young rich man's question. What must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus is like, well, here's the answer. We've arrived at it. He's walked away. How can any of us be saved? The truth is, none of us can be saved. It's impossible. It is impossible to be saved. You cannot do enough to make it into heaven. No way. God must make a way. For all things are possible with God. When there is no way, God must make a way. In the next passage, Jesus tells them how God made the impossible possible. The leaders in Jerusalem are going to condemn me, Jesus said. Mock me, spit on me, whip me, and then kill me. And then through my death, God is making the impossible possible. Through my sacrifice and for all those who trust in me, they will be saved. Through grace, not because they earn it. Now, there's some people here who have never received that grace from Jesus or that sacrifice. And I'm begging you as a pastor, as someone that loves you, looks at you and loves you, please, time is running out. Receive it. God made a way when there was no way. God made possible when it was impossible through the death of his son. That's what it took. The death of Jesus Christ on that cross so that all who put their trust in him and receive that gift will live and will live forever. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Peter sees what just happened. The man was offered a choice. He chose the hamster. But but Peter's Peter's like, well, you know, we face that same choice. Remember, the kids are are studying um, Luke 5, right? Come and follow me and I'll make you disciples of men. They left everything. They left their nets. They left their dad. They left their, their, their actually their families and, and their identity to go and follow Jesus. It's sort of like, look, we left everything and followed you. 
Now notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, right, Peter, you've sacrificed so much, you poor man. He doesn't say, you know, I know you are a true Christian. You know why? Because you're miserable. He doesn't say that. What does he say? Verse 29, he says, truly, I say to you, no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children's or lands for my sake and for the gospel will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's and lands with persecutions. Okay, what is he talking about? He's talking about the church. (laughs) I want you guys just to look around you. Okay, this is the great motivation that, that Jesus was giving Peter. Oh, Peter, it was so worth it to follow me. You know why? Because the church is going to be born. These are mothers and brothers, and I'm like the really cool uncle or the older brother, right? And Gilbert's like the grandpa, you know, right? <laughs> right? Right? We, we, right? And so, and so, you know, even with the Smoky Mountain dance troupe, I was just offered a collection, just offered a... Uh, $600 because they, they lost uh, a lot of their, their resources on the bus. You know why we did that? Because they're our brothers and sisters. They're our brothers and sisters. They, they, they got hurt. We have resources. We want to help them. Because that's part of the inheritance. Now, here's the thing. I, I, was, I was sharing this passage with the youth. And, and I was like, would this mo- motivate the youth to actually leave all behind and follow Jesus? And they're like, like... So what is this? I'm like, it's the church. And they were like, oh. <laughs> when the church is called to be all that God has called her to be, the missionary, the person who has followed Jesus and left everything would be the totally worth it. Beautiful. Absolutely. Make no mistake. Jesus says to Peter, look, Peter, you're getting the far better deal. He says, he says to Peter, you gave everything. You cannot outgive God. There's three things that Peter gets. You receive an intimate love relationship with the creator of the universe. You'll get your passion and your love for back God. You will find infinite joy and infinite pleasures in God. Number two, you're going to be part of this new spiritual family, which is, which is the church. And when the church is, is operating like Jesus envisioned it, it's your new home. These are your uncles and aunties. We're family. And number three, there's eternal life, paradise, eternity with God kind of life. Being united with God, having every evil come undone, forever and ever being united with God in paradise. This is my last thought from this this passage. This, This is the reason why this passage is so poignant. Because we are this man. Now, I just want you to imagine God coming up to you and giving you a choice. Do you want the hamster? Do you want the thing that you've made an idol in your life? Or do you want me? You can't have it both. There can only be one that reigns supreme in your heart. Choose. Choose. Do you actually believe that God will give you infinite pleasures evermore if you choose God? I want you guys to ask yourself this soberly. Is there any gift that you love more than the gift giver? Is there anything keeping you from loving God more? Is there a good thing in your life that you've made an ultimate thing? And a a lot of times you have to starve the good thing so that the ultimate thing can be the ultimate thing. 
And then when that's, once that's right and God, you're getting most of your pleasure in life from God alone, then the good thing in your life can be in its rightful place. You appreciate it. And it's one of the things you appreciate about God, but it's not God, right? So sometimes starving the good thing is like radical actions, like go sell everything you got. It doesn't mean that riches are bad. It just means that God is being restored in his rightful place in your heart. And so this thing, God, you got just got to let go of it. you got to say goodbye. Because it's getting in the way. It's like this cancer. So I've been talking to several people. I'm like, what are the idols in our lives, okay? What are the idols in our lives? Now, this is for our church and for our community. From what I know of our church, I think number one, I know this is kind of weird. i got to explain around it. But our children have become idols. Our family have become idols. Now, here's the thing, okay? God gave us children and their gifts. They're gifts to be enjoyed. But somehow those, those, those children have crept to become idols in our hearts so that everything in our life revolves around the kids, not around God. Now, what does it look like to starve the kid? Okay, that, that, that's interesting. That, that's a good conversation. That's going to be more heart than practical, I think. But there are certain practical things where you can... You can actually apply to get this right orientation so that God is first in your heart, uncontested. So I had this one good friend. His name is Ji Hong and Amanda. And they have like their Sabbath on Sunday. And so immediately after church, this is what they will do. For two hours, Ji Hong will go and have a quiet time and just spend time with God. Just spend time loving God. You know, for some of you, it might look different. It might look like, oh, God wants me to send these cards to my compassion kids. It might be more service-oriented. But for Ji Hong, who's just spending two hours just with God, just saying, God, you're first in my heart. I just want, I'm here to worship you. I'm here to read your scriptures. I'm here to pray. And his wife will be watching the kids. This is on Sunday. And then after two hours, he'll come back home. He'll watch the kids. And his wife will, will go for a two-hour time with God, just with God. No, that's a radical way in your lifetime you can say, hey, let's just be very clear. God, you are God. And kids, you are kids. What about sports? Sometimes I worry about this as an issue for us because it just kind of seems like if a family has on a Sunday morning a sporting event, it just, oh, obviously, we're just going to go to the sporting event. But I'm worried. What, is that, what sort of message does that send to our kids? Would there be like an under message where we're actually telling our kids, yeah, you know, sports are actually more important than God. Is there a way that we can send a very drastic and clear, you know, like kind of a line in the sand where we, we tell our kids once and for all, no, God is first. God, God reigns on that, in that heart, uncontested. And maybe what it looks like, like when this season is over, for, you know, next year, for the next season, maybe it's going to look like I'm not going to participate in this event or this league because it will take me out of Sunday worship. And I'm going to make it very clear to my kids, God comes first. What about career or achievement? What about career or achievement? I actually believe that in light of this passage, some of us, God is going to say, I want you to change careers so you can be more available to do my ministry. Some of us. Maybe some of you guys, God's saying, no, not that career. I want you to step down and do something else. But I, 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 but, but I also think there are some of us that God's not taking us out of the career, but he wants us to enter our current career with a whole new orientation. 
So it looks like Monday when we go to work, it's, it, maybe what it looks like is that we, we just kind of, we try to change our whole orientation. So when we're at work, we're very clear. We're not working for our own success, for our own recognition so that people will, will applaud us. So every morning when you go to work, you're praying and saying, God, I work for the glory of God, not for myself, not for myself. I work unto God's glory. Maybe it's not a change of career, but it's a whole change of that heart orientation to how you approach your work. Uh, when, when we went through this, this passage with the youth, video games, I think, was, was close to the top. Netflix for me, so, someone said K-pop, Korean drama. <laughs> One person said image. Those are all real. Money. I, with this guy, it was money. With this guy, it was money. And for some of us, maybe it is money, but we're kind of in denial. Maybe the action step for you, and I'm not, of course, it's, it sounds very self-serving, but, but maybe a good action step for you is to start tithing, because you're not tithing now. And it's kind of like thinking, if I tithe 10% of my income, then that's my way of telling God that 90, all of it is actually yours. How about joining us in this three-year series where we're living simply and giving generously? That's a radical way for you to actually go and leave your possessions. You're living simply and giving generously. And then also, for a good number of its romantic relationships. And when I was talking about the thing I wanted most was just beautiful woman to just find me attractive. And it's interesting. I have that now, and I realize that Jesus is the ultimate spouse. But I would say that one of the things that I went through to get me to that place where I realized in Jesus, the ultimate spouse, is I went through something called a girl fast. You can ask me more about that in person. I'll tell you more about what that's like. It wasn't pleasant. Maybe you need to go through a, a girl fast or a boy fast for a year. Just be like, you know, I'm going to just make my ultimate boyfriend, ultimate girlfriend, Jesus Christ himself. I'm going to learn to find ultimate pleasure in him before I can find, like, secondary pleasure from someone, from someone else. What I'd like you to do is I'm going to invite the uh, worship team to come forward. And what I want you to do is right now, just, I, just one question, just one question. The one question that I want you to ask God, is there anything, God, that keeps me from having a closer relationship with you? That's the only thing, question I want you to ask God. Actually, can, can you all stand? I want you to just ask that one question. God, is there anything in my life that's keeping me from having a closer relationship with you? That's the only question I want you guys to ask. Now, what you're going to do with that, we'll, we'll kind of work that out. It's the only question I want you to be asking right now. And I believe the Holy Spirit is, is actually able to speak to all of us at the same time, pointing out different things all at the same time. And by the one question, I'm, is there anything, God, search me. Is there anything that keeps me from a closer relationship with you? Is there anything that keeps me from a closer relationship with you? And just ask and let the Holy Spirit probe your heart probe your life. Remember when Jesus looked at the man, loved him, but he looked at him. And what we're doing right now is that Jesus, look at me. Just look at me. Is there anything I'm loving more than you? Is there anything that's keeping me from a closer relationship with you?
want to uh, spend the next few moments in quiet reflection um, and try to engage our hearts with God's heart. This is a good time to just come before the Lord. Um, there's probably many of us that might be hesitant to approach the Lord because we're probably afraid of what God will be asking us to give up. But um, our loving Father knows us the best, and he wants the best for us. And he wants to meet with us. Would you be willing to come to him with an open heart and open spirit? Just allow him to meet you where you're at where you need him the most. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. Come and speak to us your words of life and your words of truth. Reveal to us what's in our hearts, um, that things that are hindering us from loving you more. So let's just spend this time um, just focusing on God and just allow him to uh, search through our hearts Lord so um, just allow him to search your heart and reveal reveal your heart to, to you search me
to bring us to a higher place of our experience with him. He's calling us to follow him, to do life with him. There's so much blessing he has in store for us. And yes, there's a cost to let go, to follow him. But what he has for us is much more superior compared to what we're holding on. Corinthians 2 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for us who love Him. And God has revealed these things to us by His Spirit. Are we willing to let go of the things in our lives which might be good, but hindering us from moving into birth? better things that God has prepared for us. I want to continue to just spend this time um, just before the Lord, even if we're wrestling and struggling, even if we're not ready to say, all that I have, Lord, all that I am, it's yours. Um, maybe we're not ready to say that. But are we willing to say, to Jesus, Lord, I'm afraid. And I'm afraid to let go. Or maybe I'm not sure I'm ready to go. Help me, Lord. It's okay to struggle. Um, God already knows what's in our hearts. And He would rather that we wrestle this out with Him instead of just covering it up, covering it up and setting aside. He's saying, come, let us wrestle this out together. 
Some things must die. Some things must.